0: Hello, my name is Michelle Esther O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Rai Young for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is November 2nd, 2017, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good,
0: thank you. Um, Let's, uh, tell me uh, what your job is.
1: Um, I am the executive director of Third Wave Fund, formerly Third Wave Foundation.
0: And what is Third Wave, what does it do?
1: Third Wave is a grant making organization that supports young women of color, queer and trans youth of color, and low income youth led organizing broadly defined under the banner of gender justice work. Um, we support um, organizations nationally, specifically focused on pe- groups and regions that are historically under-resourced.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you all fund any organizations in New York? We do.
1: Which ones?
0: To get um, a sense of the Yeah, well, so
1: historically we funded um, many of the sort of movement building hubs led by queer and trans people of color, namely Fierce, Sylvia Rivera Law Project, Audre Lorde Project. Um, we funded Queers for Economic Justice before they shut down. We funded a number of organizations before they shut down. Casa Atabeache, mm-hmm. Sisters on the Rise, um, Brooklyn Young Mothers Collective. Um, we just made a new grant to the Womanhood Project in the South Bronx. Um, in New York City, I'd say generally, the queer groups have survived and the non-queer groups that have been specifically women of color led have not. Not that you asked, but I just realized that as I said it.
0: Yeah, that's remarkable.
1: Um, How long have you been at that job? I've been in this role, um, closing out my fourth year. Um, I started as an intern in 2008.
0: And broadly what are your responsibilities?
1: Oh my god. Um, Are you mostly fundraising or? uh, It's um, it's weird. I started um, this role as the only staff person in 2014 where my job was really um, relaunching the organization after it had institutionally shut its 501c3 doors and we were setting back up on a shoestring budget and didn't have any money to do grants or have any staff. So at that point my job was like setting up a storage unit and tearing down our server system and starting up a new system and creating um, an organization um, not from scratch but institutionally from scratch um, and trying to build off our legacy and our community of supporters to create a resource base that Had to be rebuilt Um, and then over time it's been growing the budget through fundraising um, but fundraising in the way that would allow us to fund radical work and not necessarily just get huge so um, it was really a lot of grassroots fundraising work and um, and now it feels like my job is well before that it was at that time, I was also like designing grant-making programs that would put our radical values into an actual process and model that would support organizations to for, to define for themselves what they were going to do and how they're going to do it. And then in the process over time, as we got bigger, it's really supporting our staff to do that work um, and doing a lot of things that people don't like to do, which is like major donor fundraising. Um, Uh, A lot of supervision, a lot of working with the board to help them be their best selves Um, and that's a lot of my job.
0: As a former board member (laughs) who's not always my best self. Yeah Yeah, they want to do so good. Yeah (laughs) and so Third Wave is a queer and trans inclusive feminist organization.
1: Well, it's weird because all of, part, of our staff are yeah, queer yeah. and about 85% of our board is queer. And so it's weird. Um, the word inclusion feels weird. And um, like I was just, we just did our last, um, our third annual gender bash um, a few weeks ago. And our coworker, my coworker, Nicole, was like, do I need to worry that all of our performers and all of our DJs um, and most of our volunteers are people of color? Is that gonna alienate white people? And I was like, no, like that's, that's what, that. we're one of the few places where like someone would ask that question. And I think that the idea of inclusion at Third Wave, um, when we're intentionally centering people who've been excluded is a kind of like odd. It's just an odd um, construct uh, for us. So yeah. we are queer and trans um, integral, I would say,
0: yeah. And tell me about how your identity and how you read fits into that.
1: Um, well, so I came to Third Wave like as a lesbian-identified, Cis, but curious about trans umbrella. Um, Young person, I think I was 22. Um, For the record, I'm white, identified, like half Ashkenazi Jewish, half Christian blend. Uh, (laughs) um, And class privilege, grew up in Scarsdale, New York. Um, Grounded myself at that time, not necessarily in like Jewish, Political activism but a little bit more in the Palestine solidarity community which kind of kept me away from what would become my like Jewish activist queer family but that's another story Um, so at that time that's kind of what my identity was Um, I felt like I fit in at third wave in a way though I was very aware that it was specifically centering women of color and their experiences and so my role felt like yes I fit here and I know that it's a balance and it's not um, it's not not for me but it's for me to the extent that I am working towards the liberation of all women of color and that my freedom is a part of that and I and so I think that it challenged me in that way I think I've grown a lot over that time when I was starting at third wave I was also in culinary school so I was part-time interning part-time in culinary school and then I became a staff person there at the same time that I left culinary school and started as a line cook. So I was um, at that time also like starting to transition um, or just like not sure what was going on. I was like playing with pronouns, I was playing with names and I knew I wanted top surgery and that was all. And it was really weird how I was starting to really explore this at the same time that my work life felt like a gender binary, like on the one hand it was like the macho, like male dominated cooking industry of New York City and the like feminist, like all women identified space of third wave. and that was really odd. And the more I masculinized, the more I went towards third wave. <laughs> and I think that's a complicated thing. Um, and I think it's also, I don't know, I guess I see it as problematic at this point, like the way that it feels really comfortable. It felt comfortable for me to masculinize and feel really comfortable within this feminist environment where I knew. Trans women of color like often didn't feel comfortable and and trans women in general didn't feel comfortable i didn't realize how how true that was until years of being there where I was like, "Oh, this isn't part of our rich history. this is um often an exception to the rule and so started to just kind of see my place in this work. Uh, differently, started really like inspecting my comfort level, started really reading a lot about, um, trans experiences and just like how gendered they are, um, and classed and raced. So, um, yeah, I think about my position in this work all the time and it, and it does feel like a microcosm of, uh, feminism <laughs> in general, like I'm very much in this like living fabric of an evolving and stuck kind of um ideology at all times so that yeah that's a long answer
0: uh perfect um so let's loop around to talking about third wave but for the moment back up into sort of how you came to it Mm -hmm. so before we started the interview you mentioned you used to be a republican yes (laughs) tell us about that
1: i mean to the extent that like i was 18 and had felt that I was political, like I would like read The Economist and The New York Times, and I like kind of wanted to um, have like this politically powerful mind, and at the time it was really steeped in a lot of Republican, but like, certain kind of Republican, like a rich, like blue state Republican, um, sort of elitist mentality, like I can be socially progressive, but don't touch my tax dollars um, kind of thing. Um, so my parents, um, were, well, not at this point in time, but when I was growing up, they were both, like, Republican leaning on the, like, libertarian spectrum, um, where I think a lot of, like, lefties feel, like, alignment and then a huge departure. It's like, whoa, what happened there? So, in this situation, like, they were very libertarian, um we'd have political debates at home all the time, we'd get in big arguments all the time, we're that kind of family. Um, and in my senior year of high school, um, I was the kid who would stand up in front of the school and debate pro-Iraq war, and really like felt like I had my talking points down, I felt like I was thinking independently. What
0: year was that?
1: That was in 2004 that, I was kind of at the, like, peak Republican, so right after and, like, the right, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was the boom before the bust. Yeah. So that was, like, everything was leading up to war, and everything was pointing in that direction, and I was definitely, like, a very influential young person, I would, like, try to convince people, and it was very, like, good at getting people to, like, see why they sh- we should be invading Iraq, and it was, like, yeah, um, that was me. So.
0: And were you queer?
1: Not like expressed that way per se. I was part of like the Gay Straight Alliance. I was butch presenting. I was um, always a weirdo, like always had like drumsticks in my socks and always had dyed hair and then shaved my hair. Um, So I was like, I looked like a dyke. Um, and I was dating a boy who looked like a girl, so we were always like a little like queer, but I didn't have the language for it at the time. Um, a lot of my friends were like the only out kids, and there never seemed to be a distinction between me and them.
0: <laughs> and you mentioned class privilege. What did your parents do? What what was there? Well, their...
1: so my parents jumped multiple classes in the course mm-hmm. of their life, and much of it happened like right around when they had um, kids. So. Um, my mom grew up in a large building in Far Rockaway, um, Queens, and she um, shared a room with her brother, they had a very small apartment, I think, I I would call them, like, low-income, like, working class, um, I think she's a third-generation New York City, um, Jewish person who, um, She met my dad while she had just graduated um, from Brooklyn College. Um, uh, He had dropped out of college and moved to New York City. He grew up in Ohio, um, in like somewhere between urban and rural kind of situation. And um, I would say he was probably somewhere between, somewhere in the like middle class, but it's hard, it's hard to know exactly because there's not a lot, I don't have a lot of like information to go off, but I always pry every time I go home. Um, like how big were your rooms? How many people lived there? Like, what did your mom do? Like, I'm trying to ask all these questions, but anyway, so they met in, um, in, oh God, in New York city in the early seventies, I would say. And then they moved into a loft, um, near or above CBGBs. I can't, I don't know the actual details. Um, Very close to here. Yeah, very close to here. Um, um, Like my dog was named Soho because it's they met in a theater in Soho. Um, I have the Momoons t-shirt they got from one of their first dates that's threadbare and my favorite shirt in the world. Um, So yeah so they met there and then what happened was my mom I don't think worked. I don't think she worked. And my dad had no college degree, um, he had dropped out of Kent State and was had largely played football. He had odd jobs, like he would um, be a line cook for a while, he would scoop ice cream for a while, he would just do kind of whatever, and then he started doing like small contracting gigs, and then I guess this guy took him under his wing and taught him, like, here's a toolbox, here's how you use it, and then kind of sent him out for bigger and bigger jobs, and then from there, He literally just got a loan from the bank. He went in, he looked like a good old boy, and he was like, I want to start a business called Young Construction. Um, He got a bunch of money. um, He started doing renovations that were bigger, and then he put any money he earned into buying property and started a home, building business with no training, um, just did it and was trusted by the banks Credit over and over. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So, and my mom at that point, um, at one point, like his first home that he had built himself was on the market um, for too long. And it was like some bubble had burst in the economy and uh, I was just born. And my mom, we were, we were like on the brink of declaring bankruptcy. And then my mom figured out that she could that our taxes were, property taxes were too high and we had just moved to Scarsdale at that point. So somehow they went from a loft in Tribeca to a tiny home on the outskirts of Scarsdale, um, right on the uh, Marinette border, yeah. Um, and she figured out, she's a very cunning person, um, also very difficult um, person, uh, she figured out that she could sue the town um, court and get our property taxes lowered. Um, And then fast forward, we didn't declare bankruptcy. She decided this could be a business, that she could be hired to be a pain in the ass with the city, with the town courts, and just get people's taxes lowered and practice the only kind of law that you can practice without a law degree, which she didn't, like all of this sounds like ridiculous, but true, and now, So now they have this thing where, like, my dad puts all of our liquid money into land and buys property and builds homes. My mom earns several hundred thousand a year that keeps them afloat and, like, building wealth. Then my dad sells a home, puts it into more land, and they've just become rich um, that way. Wow. It's a really wacky story, but my oldest sister, like, you know, she only ever had like Salvation Army clothing. Yeah. Fast Forward to Me and like I never thought twice about money. Yeah. Um so we have even between the five years of like my oldest sister being born and me, a very, very different class experience. Um and yeah. yeah. And
0: credit, property, property development, tax resistance. I mean these are sort of core themes they of Suburban really are. whiteness in they America. Really are. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, and the bedrock of their Republican right leanings um, was protecting that kind of class status um, very explicitly. It's not like that was like, well, you know, it's for the greater good. Like they're really clear that they want to hold onto that kind of wealth, and they see it as a bootstrap story, and they think that it's their own cunning, you know, wise ways, which is a part in play. They couldn't have done that without being cunning. Um, in my mom's case, like total pains in the ass, um, and like fully driven to support three kids. Um, and I think my dad is coming to realize that like the only way that was possible is because he was white and um, could pass for like middle bank. class. I yeah. Um, so yeah. So anyway. So I then. <laughs> yeah. So then. The to being Republicans, that that's what I was raised yeah. in. Um, and then uh, I think the Iraq War, like, really flipped my brain over itself, where I was part of an alternative school uh, program in my high school that was, like, kind of where the, like, offbeat weird kids would go um, elect into and do no gym class and instead do, like, hippy-dippy things, um, like community meetings where we, like... Self-governed and didn't follow the rules of the school, and it was, um, I loved it, and um, I think it was a it was a place where I could like influence a lot of people, and like people really looked up to me, and I was like, go war, and they were like, what? Sit down for a second. So, <laughs> in that process, I uh, before graduating, I was able to do a senior project, and it was basically like research anything you want. Um, I decided to research, um, like a polit- from a political science angle, like, can democracies be created from the outside in? That was my question. Um, I felt like if like
0: related to the Iraq War, yeah, I was like,
1: if that's if if this is the question and the answer is yes, then maybe there's some merit to what we're doing. If the answer is no, then it's clearly wrong. Um, And I kind of made that the deciding question for me. Um, And so then I researched that project. I interned at the Bard Globalization and International Affairs Program, which is steeped in like a George Soros kind of political framework of neoliberalism and kind of New World Order stuff. So I was very like, I was starting to see how that kind of thinking my parents' kind of thinking was uh, really harmful. I started to read like um, a lot of writing about um, the global economy and um, just modern American politics in general from a critical perspective and that was the first exposure I had to those ideas. Um, then i then I just basically started piecing together that every historic attempt to create a democracy from the outside in has utterly failed and backfired um, in every conceivable um, iteration you could find in history. So I think at that point I was like, well, they must know this. <laughs> like, <laughs> they must be looking for not just a failure of democracy, but a weakened state in general that could be rebuilt um, and, and or perpetually kept unstable um, for our benefit and that all added up much more than any other possibility that I could imagine and at that point I became a true like government skeptic and really not just became Democrat but became a full-on skeptic of all the parties and just um, yeah didn't belong to any one kind of uh, school. So that's where I went into Bard College, was like this opened up brain, um, less rejecting republicanism and more like wanting to deconstruct everything and just kind of like understand it, um, all the little blocks and like take them apart. Um, So that's kind of what I tried to do when I was at Bard. And it, um, you know, while being like a queer about town and like wanting to, you know, uh, just be a part of a different kind of social life um, that was a lot more exciting than what Scarsdale, New York allowed. <laughs> and Bard geographically is accessible to the city? Um, it depends what you call accessible. Um, it's probably, if you were driving straight from Bard to New York, it's probably a little over two hours. Okay. Um, you can kind of take the train, but you also still kind of need a car um, to do that. So yeah, so I went to Bard and then um, it was it was probably a great place for me intellectually to be because of this path that I was on. It's very um, much like a place for like critical theory um, and a place for um, uh, re- just really look trying to look um, at what's behind things and like understand what's going on so. That's what I did and I studied Arabic language, culture, and literature as part of a, I don't know, maybe it was like feeling a lot of guilt and shame about how ignorant I was and how little I thought about culture and history in my understanding. Even that question, like thinking that the Iraq war would be justifiable if you could build a democracy from the outside in, says nothing to um, agency and like autonomy and sort of like, what is, it, what is our relationship to that place? And is it a healthy one (laughs) or an unhealthy one? Um, And so that was, I think, part of me just wanting to, like, uh, bring... uh, try and and learn and reckon and actually, like, absorb the massiveness of what what another culture is (laughs) um, and how ignorant it is to think you can kind of go in and just kind of make something better, um, especially as a young... Dumb country. Um, that was that was just I think part of what I was trying to do with that. Um, and then through my studies, I I went to Morocco and studied there for a summer, and studied in Jordan for a semester. And in both of those situations, but primarily in Jordan, got a huge dose of education around Palestine-Israel um, politics and did a similar sort of uh, deconstruction of Zionism for myself and, like, realizing, like, oh, I've been taking a bath in a whole lot of lies when it comes to my just general's either indifference or acceptance of the state of Israel, and, um, and realize, like, as I was growing up, there was just this kind of, like, oh, well, it's so complicated, and then realize, like, actually, (laughs) yes, it's complicated, but, um, it's also not hard to see what's right and what's wrong, so when I was there, I was like, holy crap, so then that sort of got me um, feeling uh, just very committed to the issue of Palestinian rights and the struggle for sovereignty, and so I came back. That was in my second semester of my sophomore year. Um, had quickly cycled through all all of the Arabic language classes that Bard had to offer and started going more into kind of critical theory. um, And designed my own like studies of like Edward Said classes and just kind of like did whatever I wanted in (laughs) in a way um, from like junior year till I graduated, which um, I think again, just kind of took me further down like having all this time to think about political theory um, and never took a feminist studies class, never took a gender studies class my whole life. Um, so that's one thing I think is odd. People think I was a gender studies major, but I've never, I was friends with all the gender studies majors, and I dated the gender studies majors, but I never went to a class. Um, I was more involved in student labor dialogue. I was more involved in um I started a Palestine solidarity organization at Bard and went to Palestine with Alouda, um, mm-hmm. the Palestine Right of Return Coalition. Um, so I was just kind of involved in different things, um, really trying to look at classism and, and structural racism at my time at Bard and looked at the LGBTQ group as like politically irrelevant, I guess, to me, like I saw it as like, why do y'all exist? Um, they handed out condoms at parties. They talked about their queer stories, but I just felt like it's not, it's an apolitical space entirely. Um, and I just didn't care for that at all. I was more into like um, the, the nudist magazine on campus and just like, just doing things that like actually um, felt like they were uh, transforming, like had the power to like, address uh, uh something beyond just having sex with who we want and loving who we want like that didn't really appeal to me so um and even to this day like i've really come into the lgbtq movement largely through work and as a trans person in that space who's white everyone assumes i was always part of this lgbtq movement and it's odd because i'm like I feel so strange in that space, and I feel like much more comfortable when I'm at an abortion conference or like in some kind of feminist environment, and and so that that's very weird to me. Um, and I know that there are um, cis women of color who've been part of third wave that are queer identified that are never seen as queer. They're always assumed to be from the women's funding community or somewhere really far away from the LGBTQ funders. So I. I don't know, I I find, um, yeah, I think back to like, oh yeah, I was very critical. I would come to the LGBTQ meeting to just kind of like try to activate them a little bit around criminalization of HIV and like things that I saw as like very important parts of continued queer liberation work, but they were always like, oh yeah, that would be good. And then that was it. Um, So anyway, so I guess coming out of Bard, it was really rad to find third wave because I was thinking like, wow, this is a place to be in a feminist queer environment that is addressing racism and classism um, from that place. And I never knew that that existed. I never thought Did I would you find that
0: intern straight out of
1: college. Um, I went through like a very depressing sort of like uh, four month period of just kind of like five months or so of like applying to everything under the sun. And finding nothing, um, and then uh, seeing an internship pop up um, maybe into like late September, and applied for that, and just had my mind blown about like, wow, this is everything I could have ever so this wanted. Is like
0: 2009?
1: This is like two thousand nine. This is two thousand eight. So they
0: probably had some contraction of funding
1: right around. Not that. yet. So right before the recession, um, third wave was actually its biggest it had ever been. Um, Monique Mehta was on, she was transitioning out. She had a couple months left maybe when I started. And then Mia Herndon was, um, stepping in. They had secured a lot of foundation funding at that point and had made big ins with some major, uh, donors, mostly like second wave feminist donors. And, um, Before the recession, philanthropy is like delayed by a year usually, like institutional philanthropy, um, because it's based on projection of the stock market. And so um, even if the stock market crashes like midway through a grant cycle, it's only going to show up in the next year's grants. So what happened was in 2008, when I came on, we were actually going, we were actually at the start of a hiring spree. And so I didn't realize that, um, you know, when I came on, it was like, perfect timing and that there would be a place for me and a budget for me to continue doing the work as a staff person, that was after interning for maybe eight or nine months. Um, and that internship was paid, it was um, above minimum wage, forget what the fee was, but it was part-time, um, and I had random jobs here and there on the side at the same time. I was also interning at Right Rides for Women's Safety, um, and... That internship ended, and then Third Wave just kept re-upping me and then told me that they would hire. Um, they also hired a bunch of other positions while I was there and grew the staff to maybe eight people, which you know, I had no context for knowing that that was like, maybe a lot for us historically. Um, and this is
0: in the midst of the stock market
1: fiscal Yeah, okay. and at the time, like I don't think people knew exactly how long it would last. There was a sense that like things would come back together soon and um, I also didn't have context to know that like part of our expansion didn't just have to do with like a political shift in philanthropy but the kinds of shifts that are allowed when the stock market is good and that's kind of, that's been something that I've taken with me as we've rebuilt and regrown ourselves is a deep skepticism of the field of philanthropy and why a funder would come to fund third wave. So break that down a little bit more. So they're more open to radical
0: ideas when the stock market is
1: good. Yes, and then when it goes bad, there's a hearkening back, a conservative tightening the belt towards Uh what the funder actually believes is essential Right. um, versus um, things that program officers can get away with. Because usually the program officers are much more left-leaning than the board who has to approve things, the board is less scrutinizing of what they push through when there's more money, right? And so then program officers um, can sneak things in, they can give these like kinds of grants that are not massive, but a bit like in this discretionary realm. Um, and we're often like a pet project grant, right? Like a funder who's like, I've loved you forever, I've always wanted to be in philanthropy so I can fund the groups I love. <laughs> they. Turns out it's not as easy as that, and it takes a lot of backflips and finagling and the right place in the right so time. You're talking about a program officer and a board at some very large foundation, somewhere. or or a private smaller foundation. Okay. But the point is that like, I think that movement building and a very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and political war. organizing um, isn't treated as the best solution we have. It's treated as something fun to play with when there's extra money. As opposed to what other sorts As of opposed to um, service provision, leadership development that's divorced from political activism, um, as opposed to, um, you know, there's uh, all kinds of healthcare that isn't about structural change, but it's just about service delivery and public health kinds of um, models. Uh, I guess high-level advocacy that isn't grassroots-based, but it's just kind of like- Policy. Policy, kind of like Center for American Progress kind of right. organizations, the larger nationals, um, ACLU, like those kinds of organizations. Um, very, very little going to like community-led work. So
0: uh, outline the model a little bit. So you have big foundations and private Foundations working with chunks of money and then they provide a large grant to third wave that then redistributes it to yeah uh movement building yep. feminist youth queer yeah. youth
1: yeah there's kind of two dynamics there's the dynamics at the top of foundations and then there's like what's happening on the ground that yeah. need an intermediary so i think about it like a garden like you're hosing a big bed of plants right and Big philanthropy, even if it wanted to support small organizations, it's just a big sloppy hose, like crushing small groups, it wouldn't actually be effective. So I think of like an intermediary as like putting a nozzle that's a a light spray so that groups can get more strong and like absorb bigger grants. Um,
0: So here the the nozzles third wave and the plants are small organizations. Right.
1: And we're like thinking about just distribution. So it's not just in one corner of the garden. It's actually like spread out. That's how I think of it. Um, And then there's sort of just structural needs for third wave where um, if we expect funding to reach small organizations, um, foundations that are big usually have this idea. Well, they usually have just straight up policies that say that their grant can't account for more than let's say like 30% of a group's budget, which is kind of responsible. That makes sense, but... um, they also have policies simultaneously that they won't give away grants that are below, let's say half a million dollars. So then you have a situation where groups. all groups have to have at least $1.5 million in order to get a grant. Um, so for third wave, um, we have to make the case to not just fund those groups, but to work with another institution to fund those groups. And so in tight budget years, They're looking at where do you cut costs and they then scrutinize, well, we're paying for two kinds of operations, the operations of the organization and the operations of the intermediary as opposed to the programmatic work. So I remember very clearly talking to a big funder right when the recession was happening who was tightening their belt and was cutting out almost all intermediary funders, um, third wave in particular. And when we were asked why, she said, well, you know, it's really hard to make a case right now for intermediaries because of all the operations and overhead and we could just fund the groups ourselves. So then we showed the whole docket of groups that we funded, um, all of whom were radical, intersectional, um, young women of color and young queer and trans uh, folks of color led, and we are like, great, so which ones are you gonna fund directly and how are you gonna do that to support their success? And she was like, honestly, none of them. So it really is this kind of false premise that it's a that it's a it's a it's a critique of a model, but it's actually fundamentally not the political leanings of the foundations. Um, so uh, so that's <laughs> that's why I'm very skeptical of big grants, and that's why even though we angle for certain ones, we really are building our reserves at all building our reserves at all times and um, working with individual donors and foundations that are squarely politically aligned with us um, as like the cornerstone of our budget. And then if we add on bigger grants, we ask them to actually be smaller so that they won't um, topple us when they go away. Because we know they will. We're never gonna be a big foundations, a big mainstream foundations like 40 year grantee. Um, And we know that. And we do pass that knowledge on to our groups that we fund who get really excited when they get bigger. And we're like, it's not if, but when you're not exciting community du jour when your region is not sexy anymore when the recession happens um, this money goes away and what's going to be left and that's a lot of how we structure our grant making to encourage that kind of long-term devotion to sustainability and um, devotion to like making sure there's alignment between the political aims and the financial Um, basis for their organizations.
0: So interesting. (laughs) So I I have more questions on this, but so that you came on in 2008, you were hired, Mm -hmm. and
1: then what
0: happened between
1: then and (laughs) you being the only staff? Well, I was hired in 2009 um, as a part-time program assistant. Yeah. At that time, I was also a line cook, and one of the... At, and just to paint a picture, I was also busting my ass to raise money for top surgery. Um, I wasn't male-identified at that time, but I was flat-chested identified, <laughs> I would say. Um, so I was working seven days a week, 80-hour weeks. I was line cooking um, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, um, and then I was third-waving from Tuesday to Friday. As an intern? As a part-time program assistant. Okay. And, and um, top
0: surgery, health insurance was not a part of the part-time
1: benefit. No, package. it was not. And even if it was, um, my, there was no coverage for top surgery under any plan at that time that I knew of. So at the time, what led me to busting my ass for top surgery um, was actually an infusion of money right before I became a line cook while I was still in culinary school that came from Warner Brothers Pictures because my house it just so happened in Queens was right next to a graveyard where Kevin Smith was filming a movie he liked our house he had scouts come by and come to us with this piece of paper saying we're from Warner Brothers we're going to produce a film the film was called A Couple of Dicks originally it changed its name later to Cop Out and it was a Kevin Smith movie starring um, Tracy Morgan and what's Bruce Willis and Stifler. I can't remember the actual actor's name, but the guy from American Pie. Um, so uh, they decided to film a movie at my house and we negotiated with them uh, so that we had six people in one house. Um, we got $36,000 and split it evenly. And so while I was in culinary school, we got put up in a hotel, it filmed over the summer. Um, there's so many funny stories about that, but that's also another oral history project maybe. But so then I got $6,000 and my surgery was gonna be like 8,500 when I counted like travel and I was going to the bay and everything. So um, so I had this like chunk of money. So I was like, I feel confident I could raise the rest um, by the time I have my actual appointment. Cause you know, they book these things like forever away. So I booked it like nine months out. So I left culinary school, graduated, got a line cooking job. Got hired at Third Wave. Like everything was kind of working, except I was like physically destroyed. I was binding while I was working eight hour, eighty hours a week. It's getting like cuts and burns, and it was just very hard and emotionally hard. Um, and it was just very difficult to like go from being a line cook and the mentality you need to survive as a line cook to the mentality it takes to like really do well at Third Wave. They're very different, and it felt like. The deepest compartmentalizing i've ever had to do in my life um which i think is also hard when you're starting to transition like having to always compartmentalize and always like pick and choose like where are you going to be what and when i had such like skewed professional lives and trajectories that both felt very real and very intense and kind of all-consuming it was it was a real mindfuck um what happened was I did get top surgery. I quit my line cooking job so I could heal. Um, there's no like short term disability when you're like a line cook. Um, I did take short term disability from third wave. Took a month off, and when I was recovering, I got a call from them saying they wanted to hire me full time as a, I think program associate. So I got like a. Um, promotion and a full-time salary and a raise and insurance and that was like Mm -hmm. felt like the first time I like had a job job um that like where I could like just do one thing you know um I was the first person in my family I believe to ever work in an office on both sides um my dad's side um it's all like factory work um and farming and my mom's side it was like jewelers and Whatever, whatever. Both my sisters were artists and my parents worked from home. My dad worked out of a truck and my mom worked from home. So when I told them about this job, they were like, why are you working for someone? That's so weird. What do you like? You go to an office? Like everyone was just very confused about. You're an employee. Yeah. Um, you're an employee where you can also be queer. Like they just like didn't understand. I would go to work like dressed like casual and, um, you know, uh, They were just like, I don't get this place. And they didn't necessarily understand philanthropy. My mom called me an abortionist at a dinner party once because she didn't know what else to call me. (laughs) Um, She called Third Wave the third grave for a while. like Because I was also... uh, My internship was running our abortion fund. um, Which was an exciting thing. So when I was running the abortion fund and I was transitioning, I was like, wait a minute, light bulb, like why do we talk about abortion as just women? Um, and so that was when, even though I was like being supervised by someone else and they were being supervised by someone else and I was an intern, um, when I was writing our annual report around our abortion fund, I was like, I think, I think we need to just change this and like gender neutralize the language um, and make a blurb about why. And that ended up being in two thousand. It got published in 2010. That was the first abortion report to be written in a gender-neutral way, which then kicked off a whole other kind of controversy that I ended up being, not in the middle of, but a contributor to, I would say, like this question of whether... Um, uh, just this question of trans inclusion and reproductive rights and um, and what kinds of shifts that should really mean in terms of language and um, you know the overarching frame, political framework for the work. So the
0: hostility that that debate has engendered is really quite intense. It's
1: quite intense. People
0: really freaked out about it.
1: People really... Um, I got into a fight with Katha Pollitt in the pages of The Nation about it. Um, I was at the time on the board of the New York Abortion Access Fund, in part recruited because of my work. Um, doing abortion funding at Third Wave, but also for, you know, being an outspoken trans um, leader in the abortion funding world. And so, yeah, but Third Wave had my back around that, Um, you know, they defended it. I think sometimes being a funder just meant that we got a little bit less blowback than if we were in any other kinds of positionality in the movement building world. And now I don't even remember the question, so I'm going to slow my roll.
0: Uh, Could we do a break? (laughs) Yeah, of course. course. Okay. So you are making, uh, where we're at, pioneering advances in trans Uh, inclusion and abortion debates. Yes. And getting hired full time getting recovered from top surgery Yes. and the economy has collapsed the economy and is philanthropy collapsed. is about to contract very intensely. Yeah,
1: and at that time, uh, Third Wave uh, staff and board made the call to increase our grant making um, and tap into our reserves, um, counting on the idea that the recession would be short term Counting on the idea that other funders are retracting and so this is actually a time where our money is going to have a bigger impact than at other times. And
0: one would like funding to be counter cyclical.
1: Right. <laughs> and then also counting on the idea that when the stock market does increase again and giving from foundations increases again, that it would go back to supporting social justice at the same level that it was supporting um, it prior to the recession. But none of those things happened. <laughs> so it was longer term than anyone expected. Well, the only thing that was true was number two, that other funders pulled back. Um, So we were providing really important funding. Um, We were giving a lot of funding that was kind of like supporting groups on their last legs that were really important. Um, Politically speaking, Young Women's Empowerment Project, different avenues, Queers for Economic Justice. Um, I was an executive director in the middle of all that. and My agency ran out of money and I Mm -hmm. had to
0: light everybody off and...
1: Yeah. So that was really tough. And so, um, but again, I didn't understand like how far down we could go. I didn't know how, um, for third wave to exist, a lot of magic has to be in place. (laughs) It doesn't just, it's not just there, you know, and I just didn't really get that. I didn't really get that for our grantees. Like I didn't really quite understand how um unstable and hard it is to actually run an organization particularly for people most impacted by oppression like I was coming into philanthropy at a time when that was actually being talked about more and more people most impacted by oppression need to lead the work but also seeing how little people really understood about what that requires and how little that understanding is baked into the process of philanthropy and so that's one of the things that I watched was like oh wow so when this Thing happens with the money, and it goes away. The people most impacted by oppression, who in quote, like in theory, we all want to be running this work, um, they're the ones closing, and everyone else is actually kind of fine. Um, they're making cuts, but they're they're not making cuts to their foundation. They're making cuts to the growth that they had experienced um, in the last few years, and that was it. And they had there was there was lower places they could go before they closed. Um, and
0: these so these divisions between people who had to shut down and people that just cut back on their growth was mostly around race or and class and, and regionality.
1: Class. Um, okay. Yeah, um, 80% of the groups Third Wave has funded that were black led have shut down since we started. Wow. Um, and I remember saying that at a meeting with Funders for Reproductive Equity, formerly Funders for um, Population, Reproductive Health and Rights, Um, where we were having a women of color working group meeting specifically talking about supporting leadership of black women, but not necessarily their organizations. And I brought up, hey, you know, 80% of the black women-led groups we funded since 1996 have shut their doors. Um, Maybe we need to be talking about structural change in our field and not necessarily individualized leaders um, who are brilliant and there's no doubt that they deserve support and attention and resources, but how are they going to thrive if they actually don't have institutions that are grounded enough to survive the ups and downs? Um, And inevitably when those downs happen and the recession crashes, those are times where we need really strong movement power and not just strong voices. Right? So that's what I was saying. So and that the was tension sort of...
0: between like well-known public intellectuals and actual organizing projects?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, like models that are building community collective power versus place what a lot of funders want, which is organizations with very strong, smart, visible executive directors, like quote-unquote darlings which is what, um, that's like the... Um, they actually call them that? Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so And often people who come from a very different class background than the constituents that they purportedly lead. That's like a very common type of thing. So they like want. college-educated darlings? Not just college-educated, master's degree-having, mm-hmm. law degree-having, people um, running organizations um, that are supposed to, you know, represent um, economically disenfranchised communities. So that's kind of what I saw when I, so at third wave though, like what was happening, which I didn't realize so much at the time was like, our institutional power was sinking and like our resources were dwindling and like, but my leadership was growing. And I think I was just kind of like getting a lot of investment from staff. I was being sent around to speak where I thought I had like no business speaking but like the staff believed in me I was given professional development funding which was very unusual I thought like none of my friends and nonprofits at any level of leadership that I knew of like had that kind of access to travel and speaking and
0: Why do you think you received that support?
1: Well, I think it's Third Wave's model, you know, to mm-hmm. do leadership development and to build people into philanthropy and not just Pull from people who already have access. Mm-hmm. I think that's a political value that they have. Um, you know, I think I, uh, I think I have showed that I was really able to talk both to grantees well and make sense of what they were doing to people who are very outside of that world. Funders, um, like I could translate and code switch well with and amongst. Mm-hmm people who uh, really are so culturally far apart from where our grantees were. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that those were the things um, that led to just kind of like advancing. um, And then there were and then because of huge budget cuts, we weren't in a position to lose like support level staff. We needed to cut the senior team. so at that point, our program director, the money dried up. Our operations, quickly. yeah, our um, deputy director, um, communications officer, um, all were cut, and so it was pretty much just me and uh, an external relations manager, and our director. Um, at the, after, the board reckoned with, the fact that we were, not gonna get. A re-up of funds pr- that we had before the recession hit and this um, is in 2010 mm-hmm. or? Yeah, late 2010 yeah. um, and then um, so most of the staff is laid
0: off yeah and you then I got promoted
1: the- to program officer and so then our grantees I was really um, they're like main point person and then uh, our program, like our external relations manager quit in 2012. Um, we rehired that position, but really it just wasn't feeling right at a certain point. It felt like, oh God, like something huge has to give. Um, and I don't, I didn't think we had the time to fix it with the model that we had. And I didn't think we had the impetus, like it just wasn't like there. It wasn't going to happen. So. I quit um, in twenty twelve for about a year, and I uh, started a catering company. I started a consulting business. I worked at a cafe. I did like a lot of things. I ran up a lot of debt, and but was you know very it was very relieving to leave actually because there was a lot there was just a lot going on. It was very hard. few years and also it was just a long time it was just like hard you know it's like i graduated from college did this whole like double career path thing transitioned saw my like favorite love organizational love sort of like rise and fall and just watched it kind of in tatters and just felt like very exhausted from all of that and so i really just needed that year then in 2013 they had um brought on an interim director to come in and do damage control and kind of assess and then likely sunset the organization and close up shop. Who was that? Um, That was Rosalba Messina, um, who was an interim director at Funding Exchange and a number of other organizations. Um, And, you know, her her and the board and other um, stakeholders really felt that the five hundred one C three, the model we had, the foundation structure, like couldn't be sustained another year. We really needed to close up the existing model that was there, and what it would turn into, or what it would, um, whatever, what what the remaining assets would go to, was not defined when I came back on. So I was brought on as a consultant to close up the programs, give final grants, um, like tie off grants. Um, and also ended up playing a bit of a like a role uh, with the stakeholder group that was being convened to figure out the future of the organization and also to bridge um, that process with our grantees so that there was some way that their collective like voice could inform what we did next. And so um, I just think I like took to that process well, I think I was um, trusted to hold a lot of responsibility in that process because this founders knew me and a lot of the donors knew me and the grantees knew me and so at that point um I kind of was like the only person holding the institutional like knowledge in place that it required to make a big change so we put out a request for proposals to see where we would merge or where we would shift our assets and um and like what kind of uh like how we could continue our the legacy of our work if not like our institution so We got a proposal from Proteus Fund um, that was the only one where it was like, come park here and try to rebuild and be independent and we'll manage all of the back office and the operations and charge you very little. Um, Every other proposal was like, we'll just acquire you and maybe continue funding parts and pieces of the work, but that's about it. So at the time, people were like, well, we would want to do Proteus if someone like Rai or Rai, like who knows a lot of this work and who has a vision for this work to continue um, would serve in that leadership role and like um, like basically they were like we could do it in theory if we had a person like with a way forward and like who knew all the people and the players and the ideology and the history and all that stuff so that was kind of like this ultimatum like I either do this or or ha- watch it go away um mm-hmm. And I didn't think that it was a sure thing, like if we move to Proteus, then we're definitely in the clear. I thought we have one year and that's it to decide if it's gonna work or not. And it's an experiment. And when I made that clear to people like, I am not gonna position this as, uh, as if I'm definitely gonna like make this big again, or uh, even, even close to what it was before and I was saying like, listen, we might, my, it might be that we completely close down after a year. It might be that we become um, a, an activist led pooled fund where it's literally just a giving circle of donors who care about the work enough to sustain it. And so I'll see my job as like building a cross class giving pool and creating a structure for the work and then stepping away or um, we'll rebuild and we'll gain staff, but that's gonna be a huge process and I need the right team for it, and that's when I asked if the current board would um, step down um, from leadership in this new model and support me through um, being on like a legacy council and support me to develop a new board that had the kind of startup energy it took to like really support a new kind of thing and not like exist in the old. Model. So that's what happened. i like said yes, we set it up. It was a lot, a lot of work. I don't even know how I did it at this point. Like when I I our my coworker Nicole was like, Damn, how did you do this all yourself? Like because she just did our gender bash and it was very challenging, and she was like, How are you doing this and this and this and this and starting everything from scratch and fundraising from nothing? And I was literally like, I don't know. Like I don't if I think about it too long, it's gonna make me feel uh uh, just tired. Like, (laughs) um, so yeah, so that first year and a half, I was the only staff person. I was the first trans director, clearly, like, that had never happened before. Um, I was the first really, like, long-term, I was the first full-time staff person who was trans at Third Wave. Um, I thought it would be a bigger deal than it was, um, but in a lot of ways, I think, when I came on, a lot of people had already done a lot of the work to make it so that, and not just in third wave, but in the world, like in the country, like to make it such that when I came on, it wasn't uh, newsworthy to a lot of people. I could just run the organization um, and people listen to what I said and not just my gender, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was exciting. And I was able to build a board around, um my vision for the work, and I could build, I could like, we had no grants, so we had no requirements for funders, so I could dream big with the grant making, even though we had no money for it, and then I could use that big vision to attract the kind of money that would be excited about radical philanthropy. Um, And, you know, and at the time, like when I started um, a third wave, like intersectionality was like, both new to philanthropy and kind of old, in terms of an ideology. Like I remember when I was an intern, we went to a 20 year retrospective on intersectionality with Kimberly Crenshaw at, I think it was NYU. And at the time, like very few funders had talked about it. And we were the only ones, we were like the lone uh, funder in the corner being like, we need to obliterate issue areas. And we need to really drill down on funding communities who've always been oppressed by philanthropy and stop playing these games, right? Um, So we were saying that, but that's not how funding was structured. And at the time that I came through, there had been this, like, quote-unquote, trans tipping point. There had been an explosion of the, um, like, number of funders who understood what intersectionality was. Um, There was, uh, there were many, like, visible, like, big movements led by young women of color. And like, the time was just kind of really right for a funder that knew what they were doing with these concepts and knew how to put them into work on the ground. And so I really benefited from a lot of that and I I totally uh, recognized like, ooh, the, the way was very paved for me to be able to do this in so many different ways. Um, so yeah, so then I came in and um, Banked on all those things being true, and then they were. And now, you know, we're giving the most grants we've ever given um, in our history. How big is the budget? Right it's 1.2 million. And how little, does that little compare more than that. to sort of year by so year? So we've been you... bigger yeah. um, in the past, but we were giving away less grants. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started at Third Wave as the director in 2014, our budget was about 80. Wow. Yeah, um, we had moved into the bank at Proteus $180,000 was the money we had left. Um, no, we had no incoming grants that year. We had no major donors give that year except for like one new donor that I brought in through an event, um, and that was it. It was very humble. And then the next year, our budget was, I think, 280. Um, the first year, we didn't make any grants. We, we just were like, we need to build a cushion and then base a, and develop a grant-making model and then put that model into practice the second year once we have that bundle of funds. Um, so that's what we did. And then um, with that small budget, we launched a rapid response fund in the summer called the Mobilized Power Fund. We made our first grant to the Say Her Name campaign Mm-hmm. and we're the first um, women's focused funder to fund that campaign even though it had been around for many many months. Um, we funded the Black Youth Project 100 with that grant to to work on that campaign. Um, we launched it as a crowd-funded grant as so well. So both
0: groups that really were in the midst of the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm.
1: upsurge. And-, mm-hmm. and I think we were really trying to identify ourselves as not um, belonging to one movement and trying to push out from there, but actually supporting, um, saying that gender justice is actually about ending all forms of structural oppression and making sure that there is a gender um, liberation, like value within all of those efforts. And that's really what we do um, now, and that's what we're continuing to do. So a lot of our funding is, um, it's all women of color and queer and trans youth of color led but it's very much within immigration justice, reproductive justice, um, prison abolition. Um, it's focused um, in building um, cross-movement um, hubs in rural areas. Um, it's very much focused um, in like doing education work. Like, it's just very uh, multi-issue.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
1: that what we, decided early on was that um, issue areas are are part of the gatekeeping process in philanthropy, um, the revolving door of different issues and different approaches to change is actually part of what keeps groups out um, and we just recognize like the issues historically shift but the people oppressed stay the same, largely speaking, you know, uh, like you could look at like the history of sterilization and how it was used against indigenous women and women of color broadly and black women in particular Uh, and and you could see how easily that shifted into abortion restriction targeting those same communities they might look like the opposite strategy but the strategy is actually the same like it's different tactics but the same strategy of of taking away reproductive freedom um, as a tool of oppression And so when we look at that, we're like, well, we don't need dockets that are about abortion or about sterilization. We actually need dockets that are about women of color and are about um, those folks doing what they know they need to do um, to not be on that receiving end of bullshit. And that was really like our grant making model. Um, We have now implemented our like three core areas of grant making that were really designed around um, what grassroots movement building? Um, what leaders have asked us for over the years? So it's a rapid response fund that makes grants every month. Um, the turnaround is about ten days to two weeks for funding, um, and we fund through that fund five hundred one c three organizations doing nonprofit standard nonprofit work, five hundred one c four organizations that do lobbying, as well as groups that um, fall outside of any one like entity. Um, so that's that. Um, so what are groups that fall outside of any one entity? Well, I can give an example for um, like Young Women's Empowerment Project um, technically closed down um, in 2012, 2011. Um, and they represented everything Third Wave was about. Like if, in terms of like any one organization, if I could kind of put a pin on it, like I don't like to do that because We're a very multifaceted organization, but um, YWEP really, like, was very meaningful to a lot of people who cared about the work but also saw it as such a um, counterpoint to everything that was out there. So Um, sketch YWEP. Yeah, so they, yeah, so they, um, they were um, based in Chicago, Illinois, and they organized, young women and girls in the sex trade and the street economies. Um, and uh, they shut down, I think a lot of it had to do with the recession, a lot, of, a lot of it had to do with just their work Does was never meant to exist in philanthropy and that's just a fact. Um, and it challenges um, a sort of neoliberal idea of capitalism kind of like fundamentally working, <laughs> they just straight up challenge that for a lot of people Um, and YWEP and they also you know they were a women and girls organization that very clearly stood in opposition to carceral feminism and that was like a really big I mean how do you survive in philanthropy in that space and I think they were really the target of a lot of um, anti-trafficking types of legislation that actually harmed sex workers and and not just all any sex workers but the most vulnerable sex workers in this case like street-based youth <laughs> um, this is just very clear casualty of all of those forces was why YWeb closing um, despite being like a big part of the soul of the RJ movement like I think they really represented a lot um of possibility a lot of excitement as far as like wow like Again, didn't know that could exist, like didn't know anyone was doing work like that, and yet it did. So then when they shut down, um, it kind of went like a little bit, uh, like the work kind of tucked into other institutions in little ways, but um, we uh, found out uh, like a year ago or so that their main organizer was still managing the work um, of the Street Youth Rise Up campaign. And so that campaign apparently never really shut down. She was still doing the organizing work, and a lot of young people were still involved in that campaign. And so um, when we we actually got an application, um, and when we approved, you know, they had no institution left in terms of like the formal institution. But we um, we PayPal'd the lead organizer three thousand dollars. I think it was something like that, um, to pay her, and we paid her um, as essentially a contracted worker for Third Wave, you know. um, She's doing our mission's work, right, like in Chicago, so why not? Um, So we do things like that, we'll fund, um, we funded uh, women of uh, color-led town halls um, through the Breaking Silence campaign, Um, and for most of those it was largely um, funding a for-profit entity. With a sponsorship grant, um, which corporate philanthropy does a lot, where they spend marketing money that is not through any nonprofit model, and they don't get any deductions, and they sponsor events, basic galas, and the uh, and they're getting promotion out of it. So what we say there is like, well, um, slap our name on it, we're a sponsor, right? So we just kind of do that, and it's not part of our grant making budget. It's part of our. Communications and marketing work. Um, So we just do clever things. We extend our line of credit to groups that um, They don't have a they don't have a business model, but they're doing convenings for example like activist convening So we'll book the space on our credit card um, things like that so really just trying to like work with whatever people need and realize like If the only thing is like getting the money to where people need it to go that we can figure out how to do that right and that's that feels important because, like, well, the groups that we're funding outside of the C3 model are doing some of the most, like, grassroots um, movement-building work of any group on our docket. And that's not coincidental. I mean, I think that's by design. So a um, third of our grantees are getting the first grant they've ever gotten. Um, if you zoom in on, like, groups we're funding who are led by trans women of color, for example, it's 80% of those groups have never gotten a grant before us. So we're doing a lot... To recognize, like, if we want to fund certain communities who have never gotten this kind of support, we can't expect them to have institutions that require money. <laughs> and we need to operate with a very different kind of structure and policies to make sure that, like, we're compliant legally and they aren't vulnerable to scrutiny from the IRS, um, because then we're talking about, like, individual people um, who, you know, could get in trouble. Um, so we, um, through Proteus fund, like they have a legal team, they have a vetting department, and they bring a lot more to the table as far as like making sure that um, liability doesn't like get uh, become a trap like it doesn't become a a legal or financial trap for whoever we're funding um, so yeah, so we get to be at an institution that has more um, Uh, capacity to uh, do grant making and hold our finances uh, responsibly Um, and we get to fund I think more radically because um, we have funding coming from so many different places that are really there for the work Um, we have many 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 monthly donors when I came on we had three monthly donors now we have like 180 and a lot of what we say to those folks is like there's a lot that we fund that big foundations will never be okay with um, for instance, um, uh, Alicia Walker is a sex worker, um, in Chicago who we funded, um, after she got arrested, um, charged with first degree, uh, murder for self-defense. Um, she killed a John that, uh, was attacking her. And she was uh, charged with first-degree murder, and we funded her um, bail, her legal defense, and the movement building of Support Hose, which is a grassroots sex worker-led group in Chicago, <clears throat> to really like, build a campaign around her case. I don't think, <laughs> it'd be hard to find a foundation um, now or ever in the US that would do that kind of grant. Um, I don't think Third Wave would have done it seven years ago, when we were at our peak and we're answering to big foundations that, you know, uh, we, didn't, we didn't have funding outside of those big funders and second wave feminist funders who would have been really there for that. And now we have a huge crew of monthly donors who are giving because of that work. And I think that means that we have both like the flexibility um, from our funding model to, to, to go there. And then we have the cover, the political and the infrastructural cover to um, make sure we're doing it legally and like, um, and don't risk the funding we get from those bigger foundations, you know. So that feels um, really good. And now, um, because our models like more streamlined, the operations are are less costly because we're doing it at a f- fiscal fiscal sponsor. Um, we are giving more away um, with the same budget that we had before. We're giving more away with fewer staff. So it just, it feels like we've cracked a few like nuts as far as like the boring nonprofit stuff goes. Um, So there,
0: I mean, a a lot of the backdrop of what you're sharing about some of these shifts are these critiques of the nonprofit industrial complex that over the last 15 years or so. I actually like
1: to call it the philanthropic industrial complex, just to put the right, I think the right um, protagonist in, the, in that framework.
0: And tell us about that, the difference.
1: Well, I just think that, um, I don't think nonprofits themselves are the root cause of the nonprofit industrial complex. I think that they're responding to a financial system where foundations are choosing to operate the way that they do. Um, there's many ways that they could operate, whereas nonprofits are operating the way that they more or less have to in order to survive and do their work. So I think they're on the receiving end of um, material conditions that, where they have the least options and philanthropy has the most. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, And um, and yeah, so anyway, and they they have the, and foundations have the most at stake in keeping things the same, right? And so I think that when you look at it, they're dishing out the bare minimum Mm -hmm. of what they can Right. Um, and changing as little as possible to keep things the same. <laughs> um, and nonprofits are often responding to those things and limiting what they're able to do, but it's not necessarily because their own boards are at the, they're not like peak capitalists, right? Like they might be benefiting from it, but they're not necessarily the ones like in charge of that system. And foundations are heads of the financial sector. Their boards are often um, not announced, not known, because it would be a liability. Um, They have no shareholders, they have no consumers, they have funding whether or not their public image is strong, you know, so I I see them as, uh, like, when I think about a structural analysis of, like, the social justice movement, I'm thinking about them as, like, the unnamed behind-the-scenes driver of inequity in that movement. Um,
0: and you're referencing foundations. hmm Any...
1: Any particular ones? No, no, but <laughs> I, I mean, like,
0: how... Like, there, there's a small number of foundations that people talk about a lot. Yeah. The Ford Foundation, OSI. And then we have some vague sense that there are major donors who set up foundations yeah. just with their personal fortunes uh-huh. or family foundations. Uh... I mean, what are the foundations that don't, like what sort of foundations don't publicize their boards or are sort of playing out Most big
1: foundations um, have secret boards. Wow. Yeah, it'd be very hard to figure out who's on the boards of most foundations, wow. especially um, at the higher levels of making and the, that's very interesting it's a very it, there's more oversight and transparency required of corporations than there are foundations for foundations yeah well um and by and large um and i i said this once i think i said it at our 20th anniversary event um where there was a, a photo that had gone viral right before i gave this speech of um, all of these older white men in suits um, applauding um, uh, a, um, the removal of the ACA, some kind of you know, uh, executive order around the ACA removal. And um, you know, and there is all of this scrutiny of like, well, it's all these white straight men that are older in suits taking away reproductive rights and healthcare and all these things. And when I looked at it, I was like, this could just as easily be a Ford Foundation board meeting. Right, like I think I believe every single member of the board of the Ford Foundation is white. Um, I think that's very typical of most foundations. Um, often it'll be a very, very rich billionaire, his um wife and a buddy in the financial sector, and that will be the board. you know, so there are there are no laws really, whereas nonprofits have lots of different laws around um around um, how they can spend their funds. They have laws around transparency with their board. They have to publicize various things. The 990s are um, you know visible. Corporations have to do similar things. Um, there's some, in theory, accountability with like stakeholders and people who are shareholders or whatever, if you're gonna benefit from being a public entity, there are certain laws around public um, transparency. Whereas in philanthropy, not only are there no laws, but they're also um, not paying taxes and not putting into this public system, and um, they uh you know have to in theory um, like to to keep that tax status they need to work on behalf of the public good, but there's actually no requirements around there's no standard by which like there's public oversight right so they just say they're doing public good and that's about it um, uh yeah there's also there's so many things I could say about like. I don't know, a critique of philanthropy, but I'll just kind of <laughs> leave it there and say there's plenty of gap that Third Wave is trying to fill when it comes to social justice grant making. Um, so that's all to say we have a rapid response fund called the Mobilized Power Fund. We um, have a um, program called the Grow Power Fund, which gives six year grants away to emerging groups that are new and or tiny um, and or have never gotten a foundation grant before or a national one. Um, And we see this as kind of trying to look at uh, the conundrum of um, funders only wanting to establish, uh, wanting to fund established things, but you can't get established until you get funding, right? So there's like a catch 22. Mm -hmm. um, And the people that exist in that catch 22 are the very people who need funding the most. right and so that's what that fund is about is like okay well how long does it really take for people most impacted by an issue to establish an organization and to develop it out and to build to that next level of growth and we really saw that it takes actually a minimum of like six years and it no less (laughs) uh, than that and um, unless you happen to be right square in a venn diagram of all the different kinds of trends in philanthropy maybe then you can kind of leapfrog a little bit in terms of development, but by and large, for the most part, if your issue doesn't become sexy and your region doesn't become sexy and you're just literally doing the work you need to do to survive in, like, Arizona or, you know, where do we have grantees in um, El Paso and North Carolina, whatever, um, you know, it's grueling. And so that six-year grant um, includes... Um, each year, uh, funding for um, capacity buildings uh, that organizations decide on their own how they want to use it. Um, it can roll over year to year for whenever they're ready, so it just keeps snowballing and getting bigger, and if they want to do a big project in the middle, just often how long it takes for a group to figure out what capacity building means for them, then they have a big chunk of change that they can put towards, you know organizational development work and then they have funding each year for a third-party coach so that they're not leaning on their funder for coaching even though they can like we we realize like we're in a it's a complicated dynamic so they very get to hire dynamic. yeah very yeah. weird so we get they get to hire a group uh, a person or an organization yeah. to see them through we're kind of calling it like unofficially like a grant doula like somebody who's there to be like this is a big deal this kind of grant is like once in a once-in-your-lifetime, maybe, kind of grant, and, and it can be leveraged to take you to a very different place at the end. Or you can kind of, like, just keep using the funding, and then it stops, and then, like, where You know, so there's there are lots of choices you can make over six years, slowly, slowly, slowly building towards something bigger, um, something more powerful. Um, and But it's really hard to think that way and do those things when you're so in the weeds of the work and when you're really just trying to um, address, like the day-to-day problems that people are having and, you know, and are just very buried in what you're doing. So that person's, like, meant to be kind of on the outside, helping them think strategically and long-term. And then the third is called the Own Our Power Fund, and that's about really looking at what it takes to be community-led and led by people most impacted by oppression. Um, It has funding not just to be led, but to actually own the work and decide the work and, like... um, shape the work around the community needs versus the philanthropic conditions that are out there. So it is kind of a philanthropic industrial complex kind of fund. And really it's like one to two year grants funding um, community, um, funding like members becoming executive directors of the organization, like trying to address that. There's so much reward for bringing someone from the outside in, someone very highly educated, someone who, you know, has ties to philanthropy, Um, and so often groups are going to buy. And Do we bring someone from our membership in who's really been an emerging leader, or do we like try and do a power move and bring someone in from the outside who can right away like appeal to foundations in their language, you know, and so this is a fund specifically to um, support groups who have made that other decision to fund a member. When we know a lot of foundations pull away, they stop giving grants. Um, This is meant to really like give them a cushion and give them that kind of transition budget that we know grassroots groups don't really get for their new leaders. So um, it funds that work, it funds financial sustainability, like looking at how these community-led groups are just kind of expected to be sustainable without actually any funders putting down for that and really recognizing that that's a capacity building need, a need that actually requires training and time Um, and then the final one is about narrative power making sure that groups that have this funding um, that are community led rather have access to um, uh, participatory action research projects um, strategic communications and like the ability to not have their like work co-opted and so that they have the power to like name what they did promote what they're doing and actually have reach Um, We've seen this a lot where like in these movement moments, quote unquote, like when the work is sexy, the groups that are actually doing the most work are not recognized for that and they don't benefit from the attention. Um, Major donors try to Google like who's doing this and if you don't have good analytics and if you don't have reach in in terms of like telling your story, um, you don't get the money, right? So that's a lot of what we're focusing on with that fund is like making sure that, that grassroots work doesn't get hijacked and um, by foundations, by outsiders, by um, other more equipped larger nonprofits. I, uh, as, you're,
0: as you're talking about this, what's coming to mind for me is the tension between when people are doing organizing without any funding mm-hmm. versus people who's, who uh, they're, like these professional infrastructures yeah. of people doing organizing work, mm-hmm. and and part of the critique of nonprofits is like trying to draw attention to historical movements that supposedly didn't rely on outside funding as much, mm-hmm. that like either were sort of self-funded or volunteer-driven or other things. Um, I, I so I'm not exactly sure what my question is, but to what extent would you say there's a like uh are you guys supporting people that come we have 10 minutes yeah yeah um what extent are you talking about people who are very actively doing organizing with no funding to what extent are you talking about people who have like an idea and vision but then they're pitching it to funders yeah and to what extent is it a world of organizations out there that you guys are one component of keeping them alive Mm
1: -hmm. does that make sense yeah that makes sense um so well when you asked this question one of the things that came to mind was an anecdote i gave at funders concerned about aids conference um i was recently on a plenary there and a guy heard all these things i was saying and he got up and he was like yeah 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 but what about sustainability we don't we don't allow ourselves as a foundation to fund work that we don't consider sustainable. And I said, well, you're looking at sustainability purely from an institutional perspective and not from a movement building perspective. And when you're looking at it from a movement building perspective, I might look at Young Women's Empowerment Project and the um, resilience of that campaign post nonprofit as actually the most sustainable work there is. And you might see that as evidence that they were not sustainable. But it depends what you're judging it by. They did it without funding. Yeah, and I think that the model and the structure is not what we look at. We're looking at how many people believe in what you're doing, right? And what form it takes, like, we care, like, kind of, like in the sense that we want to know that you're thinking about it and you're making informed decisions about it, but we don't scrutinize or judge that model or that choice. And we try to not be one of those funders who tries to drive organizations into C3 Um, nonprofit work because it didn't work for us, (laughs) right? Like our survival was tied to getting rid of RC3 and actually thinking, well, what model allows us the most flexibility and allows us to do our work to the fullest of our ability and with the most integrity towards like what we mean by these words that we're saying about social justice and all these things. So um, yeah, I think that, I don't know if that answers your question, but like, for example, you know, when we ask questions about um, our our potential grantees we might fund you know there might there, it might sound really really good on paper and they might have all of the tools they need to really do some of this programming but if we go and visit it and it feels like it's just kind of somebody who baked up an idea um, in grad school, they came out of grad school, they had some access to funding or they did some kind of kickstarter or something and they got the money they needed from whatever means like invisibilized you know, um, wealth, um, they are maybe doing some good work, quote unquote, but we don't see that as movement building per se. We're looking at like, like you and who, like, you know what I mean? Like individual people Mm -hmm. do not just pool their power and resources and access and create a structure and then expect that that structure is going to be doing movement building, right? Like that's just not kind of how it works. (laughs) And so what we look for is like, How how did people come together and create an idea that they're advancing, um, collectively? And then, yeah, they might have chosen a model to do it under, but that's beside the point. Um, And so I think it is a kind of like different orientation around how we understand what the source of power is. And I think that for a lot of folks like that we fund, they're using the nonprofit structure as a tool for community empowerment, but they're not seeing that as the goal um and they're not seeing that model as like um the start and end of the work um and yeah and it is attention it is kind of confusing when you actually like see it break down and then you see certain groups get really large and start to absorb big foundation dollars and um yeah a lot of complicated things happen in that space but i think what we try to do is set groups up so where they to where they can scale up and stay politically where they wanna be um, in that early formation period. And I think there's very few funders who are trying to be there at that point in time mm-hmm. to say, um, we're trying to make it so that the only paradigm that exists isn't scaling up and moving to the center. Right, And I think that that's that's all we're trying to accomplish and scale could look like a nonprofit, but it could also look like something that's not a nonprofit, um, and we try to make that very clear to groups. Like we don't hold one standard of success, and actually, success should be defined by your community and not your funder.
0: So, it's a last question, where do you see uh, trans movements, trans organizing, particularly by uh, trans folks of color that that have the kind of groups that you fund going in the coming years?
1: Um. Oh God, we haven't even talked about this administration yet, but it's, but when you asked that question, like it just came crashing down, (laughs) like, yeah, this is great. And holy hell, we're like, um, I think fighting, I, I think we're having to hold on to people who don't believe in civil rights as a strategy are like holding on for dear life to the kinds of civil rights protections that still remain somewhat in, in place. Um, and I think that trans communities are being used as a foil for like attempts to completely undermine all of civil rights in the country. And I think that that's really real. I think it's happening around employment protections and healthcare. And I think that the idea of um, trans people are too expensive for the state to employ or pay for in the military, like that kind of thing, Feels like the same as um, the kinds of ideologies behind pre existing conditions and um, the kinds of ways that dis- disabled folks are being completely written out of uh, mainstream laws and healthcare policies, the way that women's bodies are seen as somewhat extra or like just expensive. Um, and like, the centering of cis straight white manhood as the only body that is considered universal and part of, um, you know, uh, a protected class. <laughs> um, and I think that trans existence um, and the existence of trans people of color, trans women of color, disabled trans people, like, are really kind of at the crosshairs of all of those attempts by this administration. and are making really clear choices about not limiting ourselves to civil rights and kind of the existing political frameworks that haven't actually served them to begin with. And, um, and so I think that we're in this kind of like complicated situation where um, we're needing to fight for um, antiquated <laughs> kinds of like political rights and like create kinds of institutions and models that can build beyond that. And I think that's where we've always been like everyone's been struggling with that but I think this administration kind of brings it to a head and puts trans people in the center of it without our consent, right? But still, we're in the center of it. And I think we're having to look at our kind of like progressive and cisgender people on the left saying like, um, you see how much Republicans and conservatives are obsessed with us and our bodies? Like, maybe y'all need to recognize that there's something really important here that we raise about our culture and about our economy and about our political life. And I think that that feels like uh, what the future's about for yeah. me, like, as far as I see it. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you. This was a pleasure. It was really um, fun to get into the, the thick of it with you and kind of go down memory lane